You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. How many of you think you are a really good detective or would have made a good detective? You're pretty good at figuring things out. A few of you, okay, you're feeling a little, little, little cocky today. You're feeling you can do this. So, uh, all right, I'm going to put a statement on the screen and I want you to tell me what year it was written, okay? Let me read it to you. <clears throat> Now, I apologize, I couldn't make it bigger. It wouldn't fit on the screen then if we did it to find too big. But when prohibition was introduced, I hoped that it would be widely supported by public opinion and the evil effects of alcohol would be recognized. I have slowly and reluctantly come to believe that this has not been the result. Instead, drinking has generally increased and crime has increased to a level never seen before. Okay, what year was this written? All right, so what, what might be a few clues in here that would tell us when this was written? What's the word? Prohibition, okay? So that would be significant simply because this was, we know that for someone to be right in referring to something like this, this would, ha- this would have to be, this couldn't be before prohibition. In other words, this is not a prophetic type of thing. Like someday there's gonna be this thing called prohibition, so he's talking about it. So we know that prohibition, if you're familiar with U.S. history, prohibition was 1919 to 1933. So we know that this statement was written after 1919, okay? How do we know it wasn't written last week? Oh, we lost it. Okay. What would tell us, what would be our next clue? as to when it was written. And what about that, Carrie? Present tense. He's writing as if this is ongoing, all right? So what does that tell us? It was written before 1933. Because if it was written more recently, he would have been talking about, hey, back then, this is what happened. Here's what the results were. But he's talking and writing as if this is currently going on. So we know that this was written between 1919 and 1933. There's one other clue in there that can actually help us narrow it down even further. And this one's not as obvious. This one's you have to do a little more of a couple steps removed to actually get a sense of this. Okay, but what about that? Okay, okay. Okay, so... How long does it take for those results to be known? So in other words, if prohibition started in 1919, you're not going to see this right away, are you? So to say that here, here's the results, is going to take a number of years for that to be able to be known. So that being the case, so we're talking about, you know, 24 years then. This is probably written towards the latter end, or at least the second half or latter end of prohibition. Does that make sense? Because again, it can't happen too soon after because we don't have enough data, if you will, statistics to know exactly what was going on here. So, anyone want to venture a guess as to when this was written? 1932. How did you know? Did you know that or did you just guess? Ah, okay. <laughs> Rats, there's always one in a crowd. Um, 1932, you know who wrote it? Nope. John D. Rockefeller. So, all right. So, 
So this is actually, this is an exercise I use in one of my classes I teach on Bible interpretation. Um, for the simple reasons that when we come to the Bible, it's not always obvious what's going on in the words. And sometimes we have to go like, huh, I wonder what that means. I wonder that, and we pull clues from other different places to help us understand what actually is being said in that particular passage. Such is the case with the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, we've been looking at a particular passage in Isaiah for the last few weeks as we're coming up to Christmas. But in Isaiah, we've, we've learned a few things. Um, that there's 66 books in the entire, uh, or 66 chapters, I'm sorry, in the entire book. All but one of them speak about judgment of Israel. They've been, they've been, they've been evil, they've been disregarding God and turning away from him, worshiping idols, and, and things have become really, really bad except for chapter 9. We get to chapter 9, and it begins with, nevertheless. Nevertheless. So it's like, even so, and for the next seven verses, he says, it's not always going to be this way. A day is coming when things will be different. And then we get to verse 6 of chapter 9, and it's one that's been kind of our theme for this series. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What's ironic about this whole passage is that this was, well, let me say it this way. Matthew and some of the other writers in the New Testament look at this verse and this section of, of this whole uh, section, these seven verses of chapter 9, and point to Jesus, saying that this is, he's, he's describing Jesus here. What's ironic about this is the fact that Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. And so there's a long time here. And so, all right, well, that being the case, what does he mean when he's actually talking about this? And so as we've been discovering a little bit more about what these characteristics or what these terms mean, um, we've learned a few things. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as our wonderful counselor. And that Jesus, he's our advocate. Counselor is not necessarily the psychiatrist but more the legal, our advocate, someone who's working on our behalf and, and, is doing, uh, and has our best interests in mind. Last week, we looked at this idea of a mighty God and the fact that um, it's my opinion that when Isaiah was looking ahead, he wasn't looking to the baby in the manger, although he references the baby. When we talk about mighty God, what he actually probably had in mind was the Jesus in Revelation. And we looked at the awesomeness and the mightiness of just Jesus at the end of time and what that's going to look like. And for me, it gave me a whole new hope about the, the, this Jesus we serve isn't just this baby in a manger, but he grows up and he is the son of God and he is the second person of the Trinity and he's a mighty, mighty God. And we need to see God in the midst of our challenges. That that's who we're seeking. We're not, we're not seeking a baby's help, but we're seeking this mighty God. And we learned that this idea that encounter with God changes everything. Because he is so great and so mighty that life changes when we have this encounter with him. And today, as we progress through this verse, then we're going to come to this phrase or this term, everlasting father. Now, what's the first challenge we're going to have in understanding what this description of Jesus means? For me, it's, it's the word father. Nowhere, nowhere else in the entire Bible is Jesus referred to as father. 
So we have no other, we can't go look at other verses and say, oh, here's, okay, here's what he means here. So we have no way to compare that. It's the only person. So is, is, is he talking about, you know, because we know of Jesus as the son. You know, the father is the father. In fact, Jesus talks about the father all the time. And so, you know, is, is Isaiah confused? You know, did he mix them up? Did he use the wrong words here? And so as I was kind of just thinking through this and wrestling through this, it's like, how are we to understand this idea of Jesus as everlasting father? And there's a couple possibilities. Um, and again, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to take you into the weeds. When you get into these things, they can get really weedy fast. Uh, but there's two basic premises, two ideas. And one of them is this. Isaiah's just using language that's familiar to him. Now, remember the idea of the Trinity didn't exist in the time of Isaiah. The idea of a trinity was, came after Jesus was here. Then we were able to look back and say, oh, now I get it. In the time of Isaiah, there was just, the Israelites worshiped one God. And even in the passages, we see that um, there's references quite often to the spirit of God. And so, in like from Judges 6, it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. At that time, it was understood of, well, it's just kind of God's aura or kind of God's presence is how it was understood at the time. And then even we see references in, in the Old Testament to Lord. And sometimes it's, it's a culturally appropriate, you know, as, as an, as a, if I'm greeting Len and, you know, I'm, I'm being respectful, I refer to Len as Lord, it's just as a title, but it's, it's just, it's not him as being a deity, it's just more of him, me just honoring him, acknowledging him. But there's multiple instances where it talks about Lord and it's referring to something more than just a human there. And it actually has a, a divine instance. And in Genesis 18, we see that Abraham refers to there's three men that came to visit him and, three, and one of them, he refers to him as Lord. And it's very clear that he sees this person as being different. And so it's not just cultural respect, but that there's, this is an angelic being that he's looking at. And so... so but with the coming of Jesus, we're able to look back on these instances and look back on these situations and say, wait a minute, that's not this. This is, that's the Holy Spirit that's at work here. This is Jesus, the second person. They can't refer to those as more Christophanies, where Jesus presents himself um, there. So we see that in, in the Old Testament as well. And it helps us understand this passage in a very different light. So that maybe is one of the things that's going on here. Isaiah is referring to Jesus as everlasting father, because it's all wrapped up into the same idea of God. Okay, so that's one possibility. The second option for understanding Jesus as our everlasting father is that as Isaiah was foretelling of the coming of the Messiah, his references speak of the functions and roles that the Messiah would play and fulfill in our lives. So it wasn't so much the second person of the Trinity he was referring to, but it was more of Jesus actually being um, a father. So in, in other words, Isaiah spoke of Jesus as our everlasting father, more so referring to his character and his function towards humanity. Jesus was not the eternal person of the father, but rather he would be fatherly towards those to whom God had made him responsible. So Jesus came not only to reveal the heavenly father, but also to act toward his people as a compassionate father who loves, protects, and supplies the needs of his children. So let's, let's address, just real briefly here, what's the obvious challenge with this description of Jesus as father? Well, it's simply this. 
Some of us don't have very good models of that in our own lives. Some of us grew up without a father, or some of us had a father, or biological father, but maybe left us, ignored us, mistreated us, or even possibly abused us. I'm really conscious of the fact that here that the analogy of Jesus as father might actually be more painful for some than it is a comfort. So if you're one of those who's had that experience with your earthly father, I want you to know that Jesus wants to be everything for you that your earthly father wasn't. And that's why we look at Jesus as our father. This is the way he wants to be for you. So with that being said, let's unwrap this a little bit more about what is being said here about Jesus as our everlasting father. First, I think that as our everlasting father, Jesus loves us unconditionally with an everlasting love. He loves us unconditionally with an everlasting love. Now, those of us who have uh, multiple children, we have more than one child, um, we try to love them all the same, don't we? But we don't. We usually have one who's our favorite. We treat them a little better than the others, and we buy them nicer things, and we love them a little more. I'm just, I'm, that's not true at all. I'm messing with you. <laughs> My, 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 kid, my, my, my kids are all here, and so I'm messing with them is what I'm doing here. So uh, um, <laughs> I, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I, can see, I knew it. He liked you more. <laughs> no, that's not true at all. So um, as parents, we love all of our kids the same. We do. Now, the relationship will be different between children just because of personality, interests, and different things. So the, the relationship, but our love for them and our care for them and our passion for them, I would hope would be the same um, regardless. So the relationship might be different, but the love isn't. Um, you know, it's, it's funny when, uh, you know, the kids were all younger and I would come home, you know, and, and Betsy would meet me and you know, I would, I'd sometimes would hear this, guess what your child did today? Not even our child, you know, not even our, it was your child. Guess what your child did today? Um, have you ever watched the, like, like uh, um, you know, a, a school show, a presentation, and you've ever watched the parents of the kid who's really misbehaving on stage? And it's just like, oh, they're, they're, I mean, they're trying to ignore it. They're trying to like, you know, like, like whose kid is that? You know, they're, they're denying they even know them, you know, but, um, that didn't happen here at all last week, not at all, But because uh, our, our kids were all great. But, um, but yet at the same time, when the kid does well, what do we do? See that? See that one there? That's my daughter. See that? She, 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 she belongs to me. Or you see, you see that? You hear that kid? That's, that's my son. That's, and when they do something, we have that sense of joy and celebration. And here's the thing. Here's where this analogy of father breaks down. Because God's love is never dependent upon our performance. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes as parents, we understand that, but sometimes we're upset, we're sad, and, and sometimes we, we take this idea of God as father, and while that is meant to be a happy, positive um, idea, sometimes because of our own experiences and our own insufficiencies as parents, we recognize that that's a faulty analogy because we're faulty. And we sometimes would attribute that to God as well. And so that creates sometimes this works mindset, like in order to make God happy, I have to behave. 
which is a good thing to do anyways, but it's not conditional. His love isn't conditional upon that. To make God happy, to make God love me, I need to go to church. I need to be doing this and that. And that's, that's just not the way God wanted it. I love the way Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. For I am convinced, and again, he's talking about God's love. So Paul's writing here, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I mean, there's anything out there in all of creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot, you cannot destroy that. There's nothing that can separate us. I just think that's such an amazing thing. So as much as we use the idea of a parent and Jesus as our everlasting father, there's, it's so beyond our understanding because it's so beyond our understanding of what a father is and a father does. Here's, I'm convinced of this. There is nothing you can do today. There is nothing you can do that will cause God to love you any more than he already does. I mean, you know, so you could sell everything and, and serve the poor and move, be a Mother Teresa or whatever your model of, you know, holiness is. You could do all that. God's not going to love you any more than he does right now. In the same vein, there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you any less than he does right now. That doesn't mean he doesn't become sad when we make bad choices and we do things we know we shouldn't do. But again, that's not out of, that doesn't affect his love. His love for us is still the same, and it never diminishes. <laughs> so Jesus loves us unconditionally with an everlasting love. So also, as our everlasting father, number two, Jesus opens the way to everlasting salvation. <clears throat> In Genesis uh, chapter 22, we find an account where God goes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, your only son. You've been waiting 25 years for this kid. I want you to go sacrifice him as an offering to me. I mean, that's just, like, are you, that's just so messed up on so many levels. And however, as we read through the story, we learn that the request was really a test of faith. Um, it's interesting that some actually look at that instance and think that God was actually foreshadowing the day when he was going to sacrifice his only son, Jesus. And that was a foreshadowing of what was to come to kind of share with us what he was going to go through later on. In fact, John 3.16 tells us this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that's what God did. He actually did that. There's another side to this story though. Um, and it's not, it's not as common, but how old do you think Isaac was? If you're familiar with this story, how old do you think Isaac was when his dad was about to um, sacrifice him and, and almost kill him? The Bible gives us no indication whatsoever. There is nothing that gives us any hint of how old Isaac was. However, all of our Renaissance, our medieval, all of our European art shows Isaac as being about eight, nine years old. He was a boy. Do you know that the Jewish tradition, that actually from the middle, middle um, 13th, 14th century, the, uh, 
the Jewish tradition was that Isaac was at least 25 years old and as old as possibly as old as 35 years old. That changes the story profoundly. It's no longer a story about Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's as much about Isaac being willing to surrender his life to his father and let his father do what he wanted to do. I mean, I mean Abraham's over 100 years old at this point in time. Actually, and Isaac is 30. The, 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 there's no way that if Isaac wanted to resist that Abraham would have been able to force him physically. Isaac surrendered his life to what the father wanted. We see the same thing with Jesus. In Matthew 28, Jesus, in talking to, about himself, he's referring to himself, says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, our everlasting father, gave his life for you and for me. And because of the provision of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of renewed relationship with God and we will reign with him forever. So, also then, as our everlasting Father, number three, Jesus provides for our daily needs. There's a, a story of a man um, who lived in an area that had endured really heavy rains for a long period of time, and flooding was beginning to occur in his area, in his neighborhood. And he looked out the window, and he saw that the water was, you know, now covering the road in front of his house, and was beginning to be a little concerned, and, but you uh, still was... It was all right. And we noticed that the water was continuing to rise and was now in his yard and making its way up to his house. And, you know, see, so he's beginning to look concerned and the door, the water is now up to the door frame is beginning to kind of leak through the door. And so the man prayed and uh, he said, dear Jesus, you see the situation I'm in. I need your help. I'm trusting you to save me. Well, so the water continues to rise and it's now coming into his house and he realizes that it, he needs to get to higher ground. So he's able to actually get out and up onto his roof. And, uh, you know, the water is beginning to rise and it's you know, still rising. It's coming up to kind of like the roof line. And, you know, some guy in a canoe comes by and says, hey, get in the boat, you know, get in my canoe. I'll take you to safety. I'll, you know, I'll save you. And the man's response was, no, Jesus is going to save me. Um, I'm Okay. He'll save me. So the guy, no, one, no matter how much he tried to coerce him or convince him to come in, he couldn't convince him, and so he paddled off. And the water continued to rise, and the guy finds himself now hugging the chimney. And uh, by now, a, a, a boat comes by, a, a, a motorboat, and some safety guys come out and said, listen, jump in, we'll take you to safety. And he says, no, oh, I, I pray. Jesus is going to save me. I'm going to be okay. And so the boat takes off, and the water keeps rising, and now he finds himself kind of climbing up the chimney, standing on top of the chimney now with nowhere else to go. He's at the very end, and the helicopter comes by and, you know, sends down a ladder, and he's like, you know, come on, grab the ladder, we'll take you to safety, and no, Jesus is going to save me, I'll be okay, and they couldn't convince him to grab the ladder, and so they fly off, and so eventually the water continues to rise, and the man drowns, <clears throat> and uh, so he gets to heaven, and he f- tracks down Jesus, and says, I trusted you, why didn't you save me? And Jesus looks at him and says, wait, I sent you a canoe, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want me to do? That was the end of the joke. (laughs) But the point of the story is this. Sometimes God's divine intervention has a very human look to it. It really does, doesn't it? And, And sometimes God uses people as a means for his provision. 
in no way that should that diminish our view of God's role in our life. Just because we can explain it doesn't diminish God's activity and involvement in it. I mean, think about all the displays of love and support that we've observed and experienced right here in our congregation the past few months. I mean, it's been amazing what I've seen us do with one another and sharing life and sharing resources and sharing what God has given us with other people. How could anyone deny or even doubt that God's in the middle of all that? I mean, it is just overwhelming when you think about what God is doing amongst us. Here's the thing, though. We know how God thinks about us. I've talked about, we've read one of the verses right about his love. There's another verse as well that in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking again, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? If we know that God loves us and he cares for us, why do we so often doubt his ability to provide for us? God is always faithful to provide for us, even if it has human forms and human expressions in it. And that's what's actually pretty cool is that sometimes he asks us to be part of his provision for someone else. It's not about just always him providing for us. Sometimes we get to be the one that provides. Um, I'm just, again, there's, so, there's just been multiple stories that have come out of this group right here um, about us coming around, the Burford family at the time, and what God has not just done to them and helped them, which is phenomenal, but some of your stories of transformation have you come alongside and said, hey, let me, and things have taken on a whole life of their own for you because you made yourself available for God to work through and to touch someone else. And that's the way it works. And I think that is just such a cool thing that God's provision for us, sometimes it may be this divine, like there's no other explanation except God did it. But sometimes God's provision is the fact that we're in a community of faith that share life together and his provision is us and we get to benefit that but we also get to participate in that. I think that is just such a cool thing that uh, we get that type of involvement in God's activity here on earth. Lastly then, our, as our everlasting father, Jesus is with us in the challenges of life and intercedes on our behalf. <clears throat> what's, uh, what's really interesting to me is that Jesus, you know, when he was crucified and rose again, came back to life, and then went back to heaven. Um, he didn't just take a seat and relax. You know, he didn't say, all right, you know, I kind of did my bit. You know, I kind of died for the creation and all humanity, and, you know, I'm, I'm good. I've done my bit. And, but yet what we see in Scripture is that he still has time for the issues and challenges that we face as individuals. So, yeah, he took care of the big cosmic sin that we all have this opportunity to be restored in relationship with God, but he still has time for us as individuals. He still looks at the individuals and our uniqueness about us. I mean, but instead what God, what Jesus has done is just stay engaged with us even after his return to heaven. You know, I think it's uh, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus had risen um, I'm sorry, this is actually prior to his crucifixion. 
But Jesus is walking with Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Again, Jesus was advocating for Peter. Jesus was praying for Peter in that specific situation about what was happening at their time in that moment. We also see in John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying. He's praying to the Father before he does return to heaven. And his words to the Father, he said, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be as one, may be one as we are one. Jesus, as our everlasting Father, is with us throughout all of life, and he intercedes on our behalf. As, he, as our eternal Father, our everlasting Father, this is what Jesus wants to model for us. This is who Jesus wants to be for us. He brings help in the present, but he also, just as important, he gives us hope for our future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for um, the chance to gather here this morning. Uh, Lord, I, it's exciting to know we've got a number here who are visiting family uh, from out of town and uh, just really appreciate uh, them coming and spending the morning with us. And uh, Father, for those of us as well who are here on a more regular basis, as we gather together, very conscious of the fact that you're doing something pretty cool here amongst us. And the fact that we get to be a part of that is really, really exciting. But Lord, as we come closer to this birth, the time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, Lord, our hearts are filled with joy. They're filled, Lord God, with anticipation. Um, Lord, in the midst of all the activity, and yes, some of us are probably feeling overwhelmed, but Lord, I have very little doubt that deep down each of us are incredibly grateful for your love and your mercy that you show us. Father, there's so much of life that we don't understand. There's so much of life we can't explain. But Father, because of Jesus, we have hope. Because of Jesus, we can find peace. And because of Jesus, our everlasting Father, we can find comfort and security in his arms. So Father, my prayer this morning is that if there's any here who are needing that now, they're needing that fatherly hug, if you will, that they would experience your love and mercy in this moment. Lord, if there's someone who's needing encouragement, that they would be encouraged. Father, if someone's needing hope, that there would be this breath of hope that would come upon them, Lord, even now. That deep within them, there's an expectation of not what might be, but God, the hope that you've placed within them. So Father, we come as people who are imperfect. We come today as people who don't always have it right and don't always get it right but Lord we come with people as people who acknowledge our need for you and we are so grateful that we get to do this together so Lord we just want to commit ourselves to your purposes and to your plans here um, amongst us in us and through us and it's in Jesus name I pray For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.